Every now and then, a man's mind is stretched by a new idea or sensation and never shrinks back to its former dimensions. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 60 of the Intentional Leader Podcast where we help you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. We release a new episode every two weeks and I hope that this can be a place that you can come back to to find inspiration and to help you stay focused in an often challenging world of leadership. A special thank you to all of you that have shared this podcast with your friends, with your network, who have shared it on social media. I really appreciate that. Also, thank you to all of you who have taken the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps us grow. I want to give a shout out to Kenny Vaughn, who said Intentional Leader is simply a phenomenal podcast. They do a masterful job curating inspirational stories and delivering content in a way that is informative, entertaining, and enlightening. I personally have learned and grown every single time I've listened to an episode and would highly recommend to anyone interested in growing as a leader. Thank you so much, Kenny. And anyone that gives us a review, we will make sure and give you a shout out on the podcast. Also, thank you to everyone that has partnered with us financially through our Patreon account. You just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters to join and help support us as we try to influence and inspire leaders around the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare you and your team to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders, modernizing and enhancing your processes, and implementing transformational technology solutions. Go visit higherechelon.com to connect with the amazing team, including Dr. Joe Ross, who has been on this podcast. Connect with them at Higher Echelon and learn more about how they can help you and your team go to the next level. I'm really excited today to bring back Rajiv Srinivasan, back by popular demand. Rajiv is a dear friend and a highly accomplished leader in his own right. He graduated in the top 5% of his class at West Point. He has a master's of science in applied mathematics from Columbia and an MBA from Wharton. He spent time in Afghanistan as a platoon leader, and he's worked with some of the very largest tech companies since leaving the army. He's also worked for several startups. He's currently a global clients director at LinkedIn and the chief reading officer at 99 Pages, which we will get into on this episode. I interviewed Rajiv back on episode 23, and I've had so many of you reach out to me about that episode. Many of you have said that it inspired you to carve out more time to read, and then many of you said that it helped you set more ambitious goals to read more, read more books a month, and just to up your game in the reading department. On that episode, Rajiv described how he reads over 70 books a year. And I wanted to bring him back on to talk about reading, to learn about this new platform that he's launched, which is 99 Pages Club. And I wanted to explore some of the topics that we didn't get to last time, like his views on leadership, leading at LinkedIn. And we also get into some fun lightning round questions at the end, which surprise, surprise, Rajiv had some pretty insightful answers to those questions. So without any further ado, please enjoy my interview with my friend, Rajiv Srinivasan. 
Well, uh, all right. Well, hey, Rajiv, back by popular demand, and I mean that seriously, back by popular demand. Welcome to uh, the program today, man. Hey, thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure. I, so when we recorded, I guess, was it like a year ago that we recorded? I mean, it was it was a while. I have gotten so many people who've reached out to me and said, either I started reading, I really started to prioritize reading, or I really started to set ambitious goals for how many books I was reading a month. So sincerely, friend, like, thank you for making an impact and all that you're doing. I, we're going to talk about what you're doing with 99 Pages. We're going to talk about leadership with you, which we didn't get to last episode. And I don't want to rehash last episode, but I do want to encourage people to go listen to it. But I, I'm curious. So you've been doing a lot with reading. You've been encouraging people to read. You started 99 Pages. I am curious, what gets you so excited about reading? You know, it started out, um, as I said last time, um, you know, I've been feeling for a long time, like our nation, our country, we're not talking with each other. We're talking at each other and often past each other. And as I dissected that, I feel like we have a intellectual humility problem in this country on multiple levels. We have come to a point where ideas have become our enemies, right? Like that's insane. And so I sat down about, this was about five, six years ago now that I've been on this journey. It was like, what is the source of this intellectual insecurity, which I define as the opposite is intellectual humility, is intellectual insecure. We're fundamentally insecure in our beliefs and in our ideas, because quite frankly, I think the mark of a true, um, you know, intellectually secure person is the ability to grapple with multiple points of view, to entertain point, counterpoint, counter to the counterpoint, all in their head and have meaningful, productive discussions. But what I found is that we were not actually being very intellectually humble as a society. We were being quite tribal. And I don't believe it's by choice. I actually think it's by design in the way we've learned to consume media in the modern day. But because of that, I said, look, I need to extract myself from this ecosystem of tweets and blog posts and name calling and sort of news media that's actually entertainment masquerading around as fact. Like that to me was very uh, disturbing. And so I said, you know, I'm going to extract myself from this bubble. Uh, and so I canceled all my newspaper subscriptions. I logged off of social media for a full year. And now I actually work for a social media company. So I think I actually manage it quite well. In fact, almost the only things I post about are books, ironically enough. Um, I shut off myself to pretty much every sort of outside input except for books. And I started reading you know, a book a month and two books a month. Now I'm at a point where I read anywhere between 50 and 75 books a year, depending on what's going on. Um, and so my motivation is to reach for the depth of issues to re and not just in the context of being an American, being a voter, but being a father, being a business leader, being uh, a husband, being a human being, being a friend. I want to be able to have the most productive and thoughtful conversations with people. I want to be able to dedicate 80, like I think I said it on your podcast last time, there's no act of intellectual humility greater than reading 80,000 words of someone else's worldview. And 
by having that humility to do that every day as a daily habit, um, I have become a stronger leader, a stronger friend, a stronger father, a stronger husband, and quite frankly, a more engaged and productive citizen. Um, I started this process being extremely disgruntled and angry, annoyed, just I hated the tone of the way people were talking with each other, just shut myself out. But to be honest, five, six years later, after I started this journey, I've reemerged. And I feel for the first time in a long time, like, yeah, I understand where our country's at. It's going to be a long journey out of this hole. Uh, We have some deep divides. But for the first time in a long time, I'm optimistic. And uh, I think that's because I read, quite frankly. (laughs) Yeah, I... It's interesting to hear you say too that the goal or what disturbed you most was intellectual, a lack of intellectual humility. And it's also interesting this this idea that the more you read, perhaps the more intellectual humility you build. That must seems counterintuitive. You would think that the more you read, the more prideful you might become. But I found that in my own life of the more I read, the more I am hungry to learn more. And the more I realize, man, there's so much information out there. I'm never gonna even scratch the surface on what's out there. Um, I, you know, one of the biggest questions I've gotten though, Rajiv, about that episode is the practical part of it. So I'm curious, walk us through maybe just a typical day in the life of Rajiv and how you are able to get after books. Because to your point, there's, there's Twitter, there's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's just noise, 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 and work and children. And, uh, there's just so many demands. I think we live in one of the noisiest times ever. And we're all over, kind of over, overstimulated. So, so yeah. what does a typical day look like for you? And how do you get at reading in your daily life? So the vast majority of people, Cal, let's be honest, they are reading. But I'm simply asking you to change what you're reading from emails, tweets, and newspaper articles over to books. So you're already more likely than not taking in content every day. Right, but you're doing it in the form of uh, the the new phrase now is snackable content, right? Like really short, easy to consume pieces of content: tweets, blog posts, sometimes podcasts, etc. Whether it's audio, whether you're reading your emails, reading on your phone, reading on your computer, you're already taking in content. All I'm saying is to take a slice of that content and dedicate it to books. Um, and so it really isn't that you need to make additional time. We're just asking you to take the content you're already taking in each day and having the discipline to log out of Twitter, log out, take Facebook and LinkedIn off your phone, take, uh, or all Instagram off your phone, anytime, anything that's requiring you to scroll up and down. And one thing I did, I talked about it last time is I changed even the home screen apps on my phone. I took to, to align more with my values right now. I have the meditation app. Um, and my notes app for when I'm like inspired to write ideas. Uh, actually now we have uh, this app called Huckleberry that we're using to like track my daughter, my newborn daughter, her feeding and uh, diaper schedule, for example, to make sure she's healthy. That's so, now like, on the home app. <laughs> that's now on the home screen, right? Uh, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's not so much about making time for a new activity. We're just taking the activities you're already doing and just shifting the constant content over to books. Because remember, there's audiobooks, there's Kindle books, Kindle books on your phone, there's hard copy books. You know, I, I equate it to eating, right? Like you're in a rush every day, but yet you're able to make time to eat and you're able to adjust how you eat 
based on context. For example, there's some nights where you're going to sit down at a beautiful dining table, have this luxurious meal with your family, drink a glass of wine and, you know, just have this wonderful, uh, luxuriating experience with a decadent meal. And that's wonderful. And that's kind of like curling up with a good book on a empty calendar day and just doing nothing but focusing on the reading. And that's a beautiful thing, but that's not every day, right? Some days you're going to be on the run and need to eat something out of a wrapper while you're driving uh, frantically to go you know, run an errand. Similarly, when you're on the run, that's why they're audiobooks. When you're waiting in the lounge for your doctor to call you up for your appointment, that's why you have a book on your phone. Um, and so the blocking and tackling of reading more is actually – it requires very little lifestyle change. All I'm asking you to do is take a few of your go-to apps off your phone, uh, the ones that take up time, take up focus, the ones that are not productive. And then, by the way, you know, in addition to Audible or Kindle or iBooks or whatever your books platform is there, uh, your local library likely has a subscription to a product tool called Libby uh, by a company called OneDrive. And that is a uh, basically digital library. It's free of charge. It's sponsored by your local library. Uh, they will have free books, audiobooks and uh, ebooks for you to download and read at your convenience and cost you zero bucks. So there's really no excuse. All it takes is just a little bit of like, you know, maybe 15 minutes to set up your, your digital input system to make sure that the conveyor belt that's coming to you first is a book when you have that downtime to open up an app that would otherwise be less productive. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I, I think when the pandemic hit, which is about a year ago, at that point, I was doing pretty well with my social media use. And for some reason, when the pandemic hit, I started to creep back on social media. And now I get those little screen time updates every week. And, and frankly, I'm not always proud of the amount of screen time, but it does show me, wow, Cal, you're spending a lot of time on these particular apps. And over the course of a week, it does add up. You're right. I mean, it adds up to hours of time that I probably don't fully appreciate. So give us maybe just snapshots of a typical day for you. You wake up, like tell us when you fit in the reading on a, just a typical day in your life. Yeah. Um, so right now, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go to a day, let's say March 3rd, because starting on March 4th, uh, my daughter was born. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little change in life. Yeah. 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 A little we'll change in pre, life. Free baby. Yeah. We're not going to hold you baby. accountable for, uh, for baby time. <laughs> uh, and that being said, I'm still reading, just not nearly as disciplined as I could be. But uh, I actually got that question from one, someone recently listened to set. They were like, Hey, I just crushed seven episodes of your podcast. And they specifically mentioned, mentioned you, Rajiv. And they, one of their questions was, but does he have kids? Does he have kids? So yes, he does. So, he have a kid. He has a kid now. But let's talk about. I do have a kid, and I'm still reading with a kid. Uh, it's just in a much more different fashion. I've had to augment. Yeah. Um, but you're right. At the time we did that first interview, I did not have a child, so I can appreciate. It. But even so, prior to having a kid, um, I would wake up. Um, my I, I work a job where my hours are early and very active early in the morning. Roughly, I'm plugged in by 7 a.m. Pacific. Um, and then I'm actually plugged in pretty late into the evening, uh, as late as, well, I mean, relatively late, right? Like six, seven Pacific is the latest meetings that I'll have. And then I'll have some gaps during the day, uh, where I can take care of, 
you know, odds and ends. So during COVID, it was actually, quite frankly, very easy. Like I have, uh, you know, a deck and I would just basically sit out with my morning coffee around six o'clock and uh, just throw on an audiobook. And so audiobooks are huge for me. I'd say of the books I read over, I'd say about half of them, I actually consume via Audible uh, or uh, Libby's audio uh, interface. And the reason why is because I take them on hikes, on backcountry skiing days. I'll throw in my AirPods and just uh, listen to an audiobook as I, you know, trek up a mountain um, on long drives. You know, right now I'm in my vacation home in Lake Tahoe. And uh, when I'd have to go visit the city for, you know, an odds and ends or whatever, I would throw on the audiobook for, you know, roughly six hours round trip and knock out books that way. Um, and then, of course, just like walking around the house. Uh, I remember distinctly, I read uh, a biography on uh, Dwight Eisenhower while painting my kitchen cabinets over the course <laughs> of two days. And I actually distinctly remember segments of the book sitting and painting and like having those aha moments uh, mm. that, that just stick with you. So first and foremost, use audiobooks. If you're listening to music, listen to the podcast, an audiobook is an easy insert. So average day, definitely in quarantine, a lot of audiobooking. Uh, but in terms of the days when I actually read like an actual physical book, you know, one thing in my household, you'll notice this is our, our living room. I don't have a TV. We don't own a TV. Um, we don't have any cable internet, uh, sorry, we have internet, but we don't have any cable, uh, channels, any of that stuff. So we do not have the distraction of a major screen in our space. And on top of that, if you go into our bedroom, we don't have any screens in the bedroom either. Um, and so what that enables us to do is create reading time. Like as a family, we'll just sit down and read books. My wife and I will, will read together and, uh, definitely in bed before we go to sleep, we'll read together. Uh, and those are typically physical books, hard copy books. Uh, and that's something I'm, is romantic to me now is the actual art form of the physical book, like a vinyl album, right? Like the same kind of romance, like a DJ has for that vinyl album I have for a hard copy book right now. <laughs> um, it's all cracked that open. Uh, and remember, I'm not talking about hours and hours at a time. I'm talking like 10, 15 minutes, mm -hmm. right? 10, 15 minutes is all it takes. 99 pages a week is 15 minutes a day. And that'll make you wiser in a meaningful way. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's so it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it's so achievable. That's so good. I so those that are listening on the audio, we're right behind Rajiv right now. He's got this beautiful fireplace going. He's got books. He's got these huge bookshelves with books on both sides. And it, I literally looking at that right now, it just puts me at ease. It's like I can take a deep breath. So I I can understand why sitting in that living room right now would would make you able to read. So that's awesome. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about 99 pages. So, you, so since we last talked, you started 99 pages. First, tell us what that is and tell us how that got started. Awesome, man. So 99 pages in many ways is a, it's a, it's inspired by, by your podcast, by Intentional Leader, right? Like I was so proud of you, Cal, for building yourself a platform where you could read and talk about issues that you're passionate about with people you respect. And I realized that, you know, this was actually, I was in business school at the time that at some level I wanted to do the same thing with reading. And I, you know, took product classes, see if I could design like a software tool or something like that. I don't know. I was like, just wanted to help people read and make it easier for them to read. And basically what I came down with was like, we have to make reading fun and achievable. And to me, there was a dearth of content that made reading fun, 
like that made it interesting and stimulating. So I was wondering, uh, I used to be a spin instructor, Cal. I'm not sure uh, <laughs> if you're really know that to me. I used to stand in front of a classroom of exercise bikes and like, I had this like Sean T persona, like dig deep, everybody, you can do this. And I was like, could I take that intensity of Sean T, but talk it. about books? That's basically what it came down to. I was like, all right, everybody, we going to read a book. And it sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. I completely admit that. But it's been kind of fun, and it's working. And so the impetus for me to start, which I think is an is an is an important story, is that you know earlier last year in 2020, uh, George Floyd was killed by um, a, a police officer, and then before that, Breonna Taylor was killed in a no knock warrant situation, and shortly after that. Man, oh man, Jacob Blake, like that video where he was shot seven times in the back uh, by a police officer came out and my heart just split in two. And I had this kind of, I have a very interesting background, right? Like I'm from the South, I'm from, you know, Appalachia, I served in the army with you. And, you know, these, that's a very conservative um, and quite frankly, a lifestyle where if you wanted to basically live race free, you kind of could. You know, like there are parts of my upbringing that like I was the brownest person that most many of my uh, friends had met at the time. Right. And then I start my career and, you know, I go get an get an education and I start my career in Silicon Valley working as a technologist for these big, very, you know, progressive, dare I say, liberal tech companies. And uh it's a totally different demographic of people with a totally different worldview and set of assumptions about the way the world works. And as a result, I found my network just sort of stretched, right? Like some people were uh, extremely agitated at what was going on and rightfully so, right? These are disturbing images um, and disturbing incidences. And then on the other hand, there were people that just didn't understand at all, like what the hoopla was about. Like, hey, wait, why are you rioting? You know, what are you talking about? This is an idiosyncratic, isolated incident. Like, let's not make a a mountain out of a molehill here. And you just, it it was like these two demographics in my network were just talking on totally different planets. And I was like, if I'm going to do something with reading, I need to do it now. And so we launched last year and we started off as like a book club with just good people from diverse backgrounds coming together and talking about issues of the day. And we would read chapters at a time. And uh, that's still going on to some extent. There's some community building. But what I found is the most powerful way for me to actually make an impact with reading is not to actually uh, just have book clubs where we have, you know, I would would just call them non-experts. I don't want to sound disrespectful to my participants, but, you know, it's not their core competency. We're just reading and reacting together. But what I found was really powerful was when I could actually take an author and give them a full hour to speak about their work and give them a platform and an audience that's fired up to listen and learn. And so you got to you got to understand, like nonfiction books are hard as hell to sell. Right. Nonfiction authors have a limited window of viability for their books. And after that window is passed, the publishers are on to the next game. And oh, by the way, margins are razor thin. So they, and a lot of these authors are investing their own personal money in publicity and in marketing events. And so if you have an author that you deeply care about, that's 
promoting ideas that are meaningful, that are helping the world, you know, improve and become better. Like that's the kind of author I want to serve. And so I take my Sean T energy, if you will, and give it to potentially like an academic PhD who's just really well researched in a topic. And we work together to promote their ideas. And it's become this really powerful way for me to put on a pedestal the kind of intellectual humility that I expect out of American citizens. And that's been an, an honor. And I'm just so great. We broadcast live uh, Sunday evenings, 4.30 p.m. Pacific on YouTube and LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live. Uh, but we uh, also, you know, the, you can watch the videos anytime. And uh, yeah, we're at a point where we're getting up to like about 1,500 views uh, per author interview. So it's uh, our flagship episodes are uh, really exciting. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, tell us, so as you've been doing this, you've obviously been reading, you've been interacting with authors, any books in the past year or so that really have stood out to you? Absolutely. So there are three I'm going to talk to you about if that's okay. Yeah. Um, the first and the most important book for anyone to read in the year 2021, it's called The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. We had Stephanie on about two weeks ago. Uh, and we, she actually, we gave her the award of 99 pages book of the year. It's that mm. important. Wow. And what I think is beautiful about books and really astute authors is that they're able to break the modern frameworks with which we hold a discussion. And she is where her book actually helps us break the framework of how the government is funded. You know, and this hit, hits personally for me on multiple levels. On one level, like I hate hearing like, oh, well, we're going to increase taxes in order to, you know, pay for, you know, a lot of services. And I already pay a small fortune a year in taxes. My wife and I, we pay a small fortune a year in taxes already. I live in California. They tax me there too. It's <laughs> like, um, I'm basically working for the government at this point. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm being a little facetious, but it, it irks me when I hear that, oh, in order for me to, you know, support things that I actually care about, like education, healthcare, like, you know, and give people opportunities, training, like I want to be a good citizen, but man, oh man, I'm already paying like over half my paycheck and taxes already. Like it just hit home. And I'm like, why does it have to be like this? We're the richest country on the face of the earth. And Stephanie Kelton comes on. She's like, actually, you're right. This is a false dichotomy we've created. The arguments that we have today about funding the government are really rooted in the gold standard era, right? Like Nixon and beyond and before, where our resources as a country were actually limited by the value of a commodity, namely gold. But after you know we got off gold in the Nixon era, we started creating our own currency. And the problem is that our vocabulary has not changed. We actually can never have a debt or deficit because we are a sovereign currency issuer. If we need more money, we print more money, right? And so what's interesting is that it changes the conversation about, oh, how do we pay for things in terms of raising money and taxes, but more in terms of are we willing to inflate the value of a dollar to pay for things that our national values say are important? And so this is something that Stephanie helped me understand, and I got fired up. I wrote her a rap song. I like <laughs> promoted her as far as my voice could go because I was like, this is the book to read to help us get out of this logjam of how we can help people without uh, you know, 
taken away like all all the money out of the uh the you know the the uh, the one percent if you will um and so that was uh something i'm very excited about i highly encourage you to read it the second so i'll pause there <laughs> well what a- one observation just hearing you just i haven't read the book and we'll put links to all these books in the show notes of this episode but one observation just hearing you talk about that and this is similar to what you talked about on the first time we we talked on the show it highlights the depth that you get from a book you know those are that's certainly an issue that we talk about on a surface level as a country but how beautiful to really dive in and and pull out the specifics of how that works maybe attack some of those fallacies that we probably all, including me, walk away, walk around with and listen to someone, read from someone who's truly gone deep and is willing to share those things with us. So I I just think that highlights what you're getting out of this intellectual humility and the willingness to be curious, probably challenge some of our own assumptions about the way we think money works in the government. So that's just really cool. Yeah. Love that. Thank you. And then that actually is a great segue to the second book I'll recommend to your audience. It's it's a book called The 26 Words That Created the Internet by Jeff Kossif. Jeff Kossif is actually a professor at the Naval Academy right now, but he's a, a, a lawyer and a policy advisor by training. And uh, it, this book is about Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. Now, if that rings familiar, Section 230 uh, was sort of held hostage, if you will, uh, during the Trump administration uh, with the Defense Authorization Act. He said, I'm not going to sign this unless you repeal Section 230. And to be honest, I think a lot of Americans had never even heard of Section 230 at this point, and me included. And so I was like, what the heck are you – it's just this measly 26 words. Why is this so important that you would stall like the defense authorization bill? And interestingly enough, these 26 words are regulating the most powerful internet companies in the world. And it's just 26 words. And just, you know, while I don't have the text of the actual clause in front of me, generally speaking, what it's asserting is that the distributor of digital content cannot be held responsible as the publisher of the content. And that makes sense in, say, a a hard copy world where you would never sue Barnes & Noble for selling a book on its stands that defamed Cal Walters in it, right? You would go sue the author and the publisher of the book. You wouldn't serve the distributor, Mm -hmm. which is the bookstore. The problem, or at least the, the the perceived problem, is that Facebook, for example, you know, obviously this includes all internet companies, they have they are the bookstore in the situation. Mm-hmm. But what happens if let's say Joe Nobody writes a blog post that says, Yeah, by the way, Barack Obama was not born in the United States, he was born in Kenya. And then Facebook is able to analyze that discern of its membership the members that would be interested in said article and then curate and promote that article and say you might be interested in this article and now joe nobody has a facebook wide platform based on the you know interests of its members that you're able to analyze and say hey you're going to enjoy this article and so now even though facebook is the distributor and not the publisher they have now proliferated a falsehood uh, in its own commercial interests, right? Because every click, every read is an eyeball, an eyeball that also sees an ad, sees an ad at the same time, right? So that's fundamentally the problem with having these internet service companies also being the uh, having basically immunity from libel, defamation, slander suits. Um, 
And now there has been progress made in the sense of, let's say, you know, human trafficking is an issue where they're like, oh, no way, you know, we're going to hold you accountable here. But beyond that, the case law is very murky. And these are the most powerful companies in the world. So this is a book that I think every American needs to read because, quite frankly, these companies are uh, they're shaping the way we think and communicate. We need to understand how they're regulated. So that's a book uh, I'll put a, a big uh, a promotion out for. It's Jeff Kossoff, 26 Words That Created the Internet. Now, if I, have you had him on your show? You know, it's funny. I've tried. Uh, he has since uh, not accepted or not responded, quite frankly. So mm. maybe I'm uh, not well, given a good enough sales pitch. You're, I was going to say, you're in sales. You know what that means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that no just kidding. means... That just means not yet. <laughs> not yet. Exactly. Not yet. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, and, you know, Cal, specifically for you and your audience, I wanted to make sure that I highlighted this book that I read this year that I think is very important. It's called The Ambassadors mm. by a guy named Paul Richter. Uh, I just finished this, actually. Now, what's interesting is you and I served in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, during the global war on terror. And, you know, you, you people can debate whether or not we had national security interests in the Middle East at the time, during the past 20 years, whatever. Uh, but what's interesting is the way we went about it was we basically gave the military the tough job of nation building. But we're not a nation building organization. We are a war fighting organization. You know who you're supposed to go to for those nation building requirements is the, the department that literally has the word state in it the Department of State. And what this book is, it's a book about, and I didn't realize this, but there've basically been four ambassadors, Ryan Crocker, Robert Ford, Ann Peterson, and the late Chris Stevens, who basically cycled between ambassadorships across the Middle East for literally like 30 years. Mm. They went wow. from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, um, all over the place. And like literally for 30 years, these four people were shuffled around the Middle East wow. and they were tasked with being ambassadors, the delegates of the president of the United States to try and help fix the nation building problems of the country. But you read about how scant their resources were. And you think to yourself, like, imagine this situ situation. Ryan Crocker is the ambassador uh, to Iraq and General David Petraeus is the uh, commander of uh, coalition forces in Iraq. And imagine David Petraeus, who I know you've had on your show. He's walking. He's got this entourage of like he's got this military convoy. He walks around. He's a king, right? He's got billions and billions of dollars to throw to make things happen wherever he needs. He is the king. And then you have Ryan Cro Crocker, who's you know technically the delegate of the president of the United States in country. It's technically you know uh, he's technically more senior than General Petraeus at this time, but. He's got like a staff of 30 people. He's begging for rides. He's hailing taxi cabs when he mm. needs to, to get around, right? Wow. So what it does is it shows you like, yes, we had maybe some national security or uh, even economic interests in the Middle East, but we went at it with the with with the sledgehammer of the U.S. military when we needed a little bit more of a scal scalpel and suture uh, deliberate technique of, you know, uh, a state department, uh, diplom di diplomat. And, um, it's just such a fantastic, it's a humbling book, Cal, because I know you and I gave a lot of our lives and a lot of our time. We had soldiers that some of them paid the ultimate sacrifice to, to serve our country. And what this, it, it's humbling because no matter how hard you and I train, no matter how, uh, strong our military is, unless we 
give the, that those diplomatic experts the resources they need to get their job done, mm-hmm. we're actually putting ourselves and our soldier in, this, in, in greater danger. And that's what I walked away with that book is that sense of like, wow, the limiting effects that the U.S. military can have in a global world. Like we really need to start thinking about our, our diplomatic arm. So highly recommend that book as well. And who is the author on that? I missed it. Sure. It's a guy named Paul Richter. Paul Richter. That sounds familiar. You know, you remember both of you and I, we were at West Point. We were preparing to go be platoon leaders. And right around that time, they were really pushing these semester abroads. And I think that was because of a realization that not only are you going over there to lead in combat, but you're also likely going to be asked to do these non-combat kind of nation building. And, and really, we weren't prepared to do that in a lot of ways. We, we had been yeah. preparing to do battle drills, but we probably should be preparing to learn languages and to, and, and, and I think that highlights the, the strategy that perhaps that was, that was taken using the Department of Defense to, to do things that perhaps are outside of our, our wheelhouse. Well, that's also Absolutely. a good segue to, so we didn't talk about this last time, but I'm, I'm frankly really curious. And I don't think you and I, Reggie, have ever really talked about leadership in a deliberate way. I mean, we've talked about it, uh, as, you know, you and I are, are friends and we talk a lot, but I'm, I'm really curious because you, have obviously read a lot <laughs> and you you've got military leadership experience with the West Point. You've now got your Wharton MBA and you've spent now how many years in the private sector? Uh, <laughs> a decent amount. <laughs> a decent amount. I mean, so, so you've spent, you know, probably at this point, almost a decade in the private sector and now you're a leader in a, in a formal leadership role at LinkedIn and so I just, I'm curious. So all that reading you've done, education, experience, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious in your view, when you think about leadership, when you think about leadership at its essence and what it means to you, what, what would you say leadership is all about? So I would say leadership is absolutely an art, not a science. To ask the question, like, what does, what is a good leader? That's like, asking like, what is a good song or a good movie, right? It's an art. Um, now to me there, what we're, what we're aspiring to is a, let's call it a positive leadership outcome, a PLO, positive leadership outcome. And to me, there's three components to it. It is the disposition of the leader, the disposition of the team and the context in which that team is operating. And each of those three things has to be designed for one another in order for a positive leadership outcome. And it's crazy the events that lead to this. Like one of my favorite examples is uh, Winston Churchill. There's a book about uh, the days of uh, the first days of the uh, the bombing of Britain where Winston Churchill is in charge. And you learn about like Lord Halifax, Neville Chamberlain and the run up to World War II. And what you learn is that Winston Churchill, by all accounts, should never have been prime minister of Great Britain. Like he was a weird dude. Like this guy was not equipped to lead a country. Uh, he was temperamental. He was uh, he, he drank way too much, took naps in the middle of the day. Like he, he was a eccentric guy. I'm not going to go into too much more detail with your readers, but just leave it to be known that. He was not your average politician. And then you had these charismatic figures like Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax that were destined to lead the nation. Obviously, they were going to be the, uh, the chosen ones. And then Germany starts 
taking over Poland, moving west towards Paris, and the Brits get scared out of their minds, right? Like this is dangerous. And this very powerful nation, the British Empire, mind you, right? They get scared and they realize the old guard of, you know, Chamberlain and and, uh, Halifax, these are quite frankly, just too soft. They didn't have the nerves of steel, the blind resolve to fight against an intimidating, um, evil figure like Hitler. And that's where Winston Churchill finds his time. He was the right leader with the right team, with the right context. And had those that team and that context not been there, Winston Churchill would have been flat, falling flat on his face. You know, and Dwight Eisenhower is another great example. He was the right man. He was this bureaucratic savant, right? He was uh, working for MacArthur in the Pacific Theater as a major, and then all of a sudden became this five-star general in the same war, right? Like he was a bureaucratic savant, and he was well-equipped to be the commander of NATO forces, that a great team in the context of managing the D-Day invasion. He was the right man for that, but. Let's say you take Dwight Eisenhower and put him in the 1970s on, say, somewhere in Palo Alto with Steve Wozniak. Does he emerge to lead Apple and found Apple? Absolutely not. Right? He would have been the wrong – that would have been the wrong leader for, the, for that team in that context. So I think what we got to think about as leaders is not so much am I a good leader, am I a bad leader. I think the real metric of a good leader is someone who is able to become – uh, to, to, to earn that disposition for their team and for their context. That's, a, that's, in my opinion, the definition of a good leader. To me, the definition of a great leader is someone who can actively change, adapt, or augment their disposition and temperament when their teams change or when the context changes. This is a really hard problem to solve. And it's something that I'm working on as a leader myself. The guy that I think does does this the best in the modern day right now is Bill Gates. Think about this. He founded and led a 10-person startup trying to just trying to survive. Then he ends up managing and leading the world's largest Fortune 500 corporation, right? Like the, a massive bureaucracy that's got customers around the globe, governments, intelligence agencies, other Fortune 500 companies. And then he says, you know what? I'm going to go lead a charity that goes, tries and eliminate malaria, right? Like his team, his context has changed so much. And each time he is able to, he has been able to adapt his disposition. To me, that's the mark of a great leader. Uh, so, you know, I think another couple of names like Jimmy Carter went from being a peanut farmer, a naval officer, led as president of the United States, and again, went on to charitable causes and religious causes. Magic Johnson, one day he's leading, you know, the LA Lakers. Next day, he's like, he, he's a multi, multi-millionaire, uh, more from the businesses that he's invested in and led. Um, even a guy like Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen is an, he's a comedian. He's an actor. Yet he's channeled some of that creative leadership into his charity, uh, Hilarity for Charity, focused on Alzheimer's research, right? It's a translation of passion that allows these folks who have gotten their, who've earned their stripes in one domain, but that passion allows them to adapt and augment their skill set to a change in context and a change in team. And uh, that to me is the mark of a, of a great leader. I really think that's insightful. It, it actually makes me think of 
one thing I've heard Gerald Petraeus say, you ask him his leadership philosophy and he doesn't have one because it's different for every person. It's different for every team he leads. I was thinking about this the other day. It's like if in the military context, what makes a good squad leader is not necessarily what makes a great platoon leader or what makes a great battalion commander or a sergeant major. You need a different approach depending on the level, depending on the people, depending on the mission. It, it, it And I think what you're highlighting is that it's not this kind of this cookie cutter approach. Uh, so, so I love that. I'm curious. So as a leader at LinkedIn, this is kind of a, a couple of things that I'd like to explore. One, just generally what, what are, what's it like leading a team at, at a technology company like that? But also I'm curious, how difficult is it to lead a routine, lead a team remotely? Because you're also now, uh, I think doing something that a lot of people are finding themselves doing, leading a team remotely, leading a team, I believe for you across the globe. So, so give us some insights into how you, some, maybe some lessons learned or, or some principles that you employ for leading, a, leading a team at a, at a remote technology company. So first I would say that I'm incredibly spoiled, right? Like the folks that are on my team, like we're the global accounts program at, at LinkedIn, uh, or global clients program at LinkedIn. Like this team is just, they, they're the kinds of folks that I'm learning from them, right? Like I think the world of these folks, they are seasoned uh, tech executives that don't need a lot of handholding, right? And, you know, to me, in my current state as a leader in my development, the leader, the leadership persona that I'm channeling is actually Phil Jackson. So Phil Jackson was uh, the coach of the Bulls when Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman were on. Then he went and coached the Lakers with Kobe, and I believe LeBron was on there as well. Like this guy has coached these elite megastars to greatness, right? And what's interesting in his coaching style is that his goal and like a lot of coaches is not to prove to you how smart he is he was never trying to tell michael jordan how to you know how good he was and how better how, how much better his strategy was his goal was to truly augment the team and formulate a team culture and community because when you have all this star power and all this raw talent it's not about like just individual getting the ball in the hoop Right. It's about culture, teamwork, opening doors that weren't open before. How do you make the whole greater than the sum of its parts? And what's awesome is that Phil Jackson, while he was an NBA player on the Knicks for, for some time, the most impactful things he brought to the table were actually meditation, spirituality, um, the sense of community. He, he speaks openly about how he brought in philosophies from, he, he grew up in North in, in the Dakotas and there's the Lakota tribal religion that he was able to bring into the team as a way of like moderating these epic personalities. Right. Um, he also talks a lot about, you know, meditation. In fact, if you see the last dance on Netflix, there's a scene of him actually running a yoga class on the home court at Chicago bulls mm -hmm. with Michael Jordan in attendance, you know, and, that's the kind of thing, like these guys like Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, all these elite athletes, they're constantly looking for the next advantage. And when you're able to go to a guy like Michael Jordan and say, hey, you know, you're amazing, man, but I just want to give you something a little bit extra. I want to augment you and I want to be your champion. Uh, a guy like Michael Jordan is not going to be aggressive. He's not going to be confrontational about that. He's going to be cooperative. He's going to listen. 
And so I find that on my team. I've got a bunch of Michael Jordans, man. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. They're the best sellers. And I get intimidated by them, right? And I'm I'm, you know, not not I'm also kind of a young, relatively inexperienced guy. Like 10 years in the private sector is not a long time. And you know, I found that for me, I have to channel a little bit of my Phil Jackson and be like, look, when you're coaching Michael Jordan, you know, you take a step back. You let you let the you let the wisdom come to you. It's my job to facilitate it. And uh, I've got like five Michael Jordans on my team, right? Like they're amazing. <laughs> and so that's what I, I'd like to say. It's it's one, it's letting the wisdom come to me and just facilitating it back and making sure that culture and community are the core of my uh, focus. Now, what's interesting there, and this is something that I actually have taken from the military and applied to my roles in leadership is one thing the military does very well is no matter what briefing you're attending, there is a mission statement. There is the who, what, where, when, and why we are doing what we're doing and why we're here. That's something I find very much lacking in most private sector institutions, even in institutions that I admire, leaders that I admire. I have been uh, just somewhat, I wouldn't say disappointed, but I've been surprised that there's not a unifying mission statement at the beginning of every even small endeavor. Right. And so one thing I think my team has at the beginning of every monthly meeting or whatever we're doing is I always state this is our team mission and this is what it looks like when we succeed. And even in my small bubble of LinkedIn, I think that helps keep people motivated. And it's like, okay, I get it. This is why we're here. So that's the most important thing I've taken from the military. That's really good. I, I was listening, Patrick Lencioni is one of my favorite leadership authors, and he talks about how every meeting should have one of those. Every meeting, you should, you should start the meeting with, hey, this is the purpose of this meeting, and then kind of at the end of it, summarize, hey, this is what we accomplished, this is the purpose of this. And another thing he says that I love that I think you're getting at a little bit is, you know, as a leader, you should be the chief repeating officer. So you should constantly, even if you've stated your mission before, and it probably, you feel like you're being a broken record. You should constantly be repeating, hey, this is our mission. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is our mission. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Because people need to continue to hear that. People need Absolutely. to continue to, you need to continue to reinforce the vision of, even if it's a, a tactical you know, mission in that moment or a more strategic mission overall, helping people see the vision, reminding them of that. It's all about clarity. I think that's, that's genius, man. Uh, so Rajiv, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I want to transition to a lightning round with you. This is going to be fun <laughs> because I don't know the answer to these questions. And I ask most of my guests these questions. This is going to be fun for me. So the first one I want to ask you is your top marriage or relationship advice. I would say that love is a symptom of commitment. Commitment is not a symptom of love. You have to be truly committed to someone to love them and to earn the love of that person. And I think this is very important because we live in a world of constant swiping and endless dating option. You open your phone and you can have 10,000 prospects in your phone. And that means that your your, your pull to commitment is dwindling. You know, there's a book, great book uh, by Aziz Ansari called Modern Romance, which I think is now about 20 years old, but it's still very <laughs> relevant today. And he talks about how the modern dating uh, with perpetual optionality is actually destroying yeah. your ability to find happiness. And so, you know, my parents were an arranged marriage and they met, met each other roughly 30 days before their wedding date. And it was that commitment that says, I'm here for you. You're here for me. Let's do this. Anything that comes our way, we're going to take care of. Mm-hmm. 
that's where love comes from. It's not because of some compatibility formula. So remember, commitment yeah. comes first. I love that. And I got to comment on that because I think it's so good. I, I think that there's, there's beauty too. When there's a commitment, when there's a covenant, there's safety. And in that safety, there's this feeling of vulner- willingness to be vulnerable and willing to say, hey, look, I know we're both committed so I can, tro- I can show you my true self and not think that you're constantly looking for what other options might be out there. And also your parents are amazing, by the way. Love them. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So next one, what is, just tell us one habit or routine or ritual that you think has had the most positive impact on your life. Sleep with your phone outside your bedroom. Right now, a lot of people sleep with their phone and it's, oh, it's my alarm clock. Oh, no, get, you don't need that. Go buy yourself a $10 alarm clock. Or get what I actually do is I have like an Echo Dot that I bought for like 25 bucks used. It's the generation one or two. It's like really old. But I just say, hey, Alexa, wake me up in the morning or at whatever time, right? And uh, what that does is it voids my room of screens. There's no temptation, like let's say on a bathroom break, that I go and grab my phone, look at it, see what notifications are popped up. Your phone is your gateway to the outside world. And when it's next to you during your hours of sleep, your mind races, your mind senses it, your mind is constantly looking to that outside world. Sleep is time for you. The outside world can wait. There ain't nothing that you need to be looking at. Get your deep, thoughtful sleep and wake up refreshed so that you can be the best version of yourself. That's great. Uh, Best piece of advice that you've been given? My father once told me, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and I say that because I find that in life, success is actually only 10% making the right decisions with the right people and 90% avoiding bad decisions with the wrong people. Mm. There are a lot, we live in a capitalist society, right? There's, you hear sales pitches all the time. And especially as I become more, uh, senior in my career, I get pitched constantly on, you know, just people who want something from me and who are feigning caring about me when really they have an agenda. Um, and that's okay. I I mean, I'm not disrespectful. Like they got to make a living too. They're trying to sell. I get it, but we need to be critical, critical thinkers and invest our time, our money and our focus where it's most likely to yield value. We can't be sold by dreams. So next time you hear something that just sounds amazing, an opportunity to invest a job, a startup that looks so promising, like just always take your step back and be like, if it's too good to be true, like if this kind of thing is just so amazing and you have like, you know, what, what, what are the problems under the hood, you know, and be more critical. Now you've mentioned a lot of leaders on this show, which are all amazing. I appreciate you bringing those up, but I'm curious, who is one leader, whether it's a historical figure or just someone that you've worked with or interacted with, who's one leader that you really look up to? Man, oh man, ain't that the question? Um, it's very hard for me to pick one. Um, you know, honest to God, I think Ulysses S. Grant is a leader that I have become extremely interested in. You know, when he died and his casket was being brought down um, in, in New York City, and this is past his presidential years, etc. You know, who are his pallbearers? On one side, he had uh, General Sheridan and Sherman from the Union Army. And on the other side, it was General Longstreet. And um, can't remember the other one. I think it's uh, uh, Breckenridge on the other. 
so two Confederate generals and two Union generals marching his casket down. He was a man that, you know, he was a military man. He was an army man, West Point graduate, obviously. And, uh, you know, when you read about his level of he, he was just a magnanimous victor um, at the Battle of Vicksburg, for example. I mean, he let these soldiers, he saw their humanity. He, was, he, he let them take their, their horses home, you know, and he let them go and, and they, he left their weapons. But he said, yeah, you can take your horses. You got to make a living. I mean, he just he had an instinct for unity and unification. And so uh, to me, in many ways, Alex, uh, Alexander Hamilton was uh, one of Ron Chernow's like – I mean, obviously not a breakout book. He's been an amazing author for a while, but obviously Hamilton, as a result of the play, has gotten a lot of esteem. I actually think in many ways, uh, Ulysses S. Grant is, is the next Hamilton in, in what we need to revere as a society in terms of um, someone who really uh, had no other agenda than just to unify the country. And I think Ulysses S. Grant, whether he was successful at that or not, you can debate, but um, as I read a lot about him, I think that's where his heart was at, was uh, unification. I think it highlights too what you mentioned before about the disposition of the leader, the disposition of the team and the context of the leader. What a perfect leader for, for that time. Obviously, after looking for so many people to take up that leadership role, he was the guy and what a, what a gift to our country. So Rajiv, uh, man, this has been awesome. And I think once again, you are going to be a, a hit guest. So thank you so much for your time today. I do want to leave you with the last word. So if there's anything that we, obviously we talked a lot about reading, we talked about leadership. Uh, I'd love for, if there's anything else you would just want to share with the leaders out there uh, and the audience, uh, I'd love to give you the last word. Uh, just remember uh, at the end of the day, we all got to live with each other. So uh, let's be compassionate with one another. That's so good. And I love your mission, man. I love, uh, I love what you're doing, trying to help people unify. I think this country needs that. Uh, I think we as just people need that. So keep up the great work. Everyone go check out 99 Pages, and I'll put uh, links to all of that in the show notes. Actually, Rajiv, why don't you just tell us, wh where's the best place for people to, to follow what you're doing and connect with 99 Pages? Sure. Uh, my, uh, the, the, the most active community is on LinkedIn. Uh, check us out at 99 pages club. If you throw that in your search bar on LinkedIn, you can find us, uh, follow us there and, uh, you'll be kept up to date. You can also follow us on YouTube, uh, at 99 pages club is our handle. And, uh, we're just so excited to have you, have you a part of the community and, uh, please, uh, you know, it's just me. So if you got comments, you got <laughs> ideas, like you got authors that really fire you up, send them my way. I'll reach out to them. I'll see if I can get them on. That's awesome. All right, brother. We'll, we'll have to check in again. We'll, we'll continue to check in with Rajiv and, and get more on what he's reading and what he's been reading. And uh, thanks so much today, brother. Thank you, sir. Wow. So many great takeaways from that conversation with Rajiv. He is such a wealth of knowledge and it just shows you how valuable it is to spend time in long form reading. The depth of knowledge that you gain from that is just phenomenal. Every time I talk to Rajiv about what he's been reading, it inspires me to read more, to make time for that. And I hope it did the same for you. I love his comment about how important it is to be intellectually humble and just how intellectual humility is what led him to start 99 Pages. Go check out 99 Pages. I'll put links to that and all the books that we discussed in the show notes at calwalters.me. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in today. Let me know what you thought of this conversation. I hope you go out and read more. I hope you go out and 
live an intentional life so that you can lead yourself, lead your family, lead your friends. Remember, life is short, so let's go make it count.